This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Now, there's, a, there's another aspect... There's another aspect of the Day of Atonement which, which is extremely important and distinctive of the Adventist Church. Now, what is it that announced the beginning of the Day of Atonement? The Feast of Trumpets, that's right. Now, when the Day of Atonement was going to arrive, what did Israel have to do? If you, if you read Leviticus 23, it says, first of all, they were to gather around the sanctuary. Their mind was to be in the sanctuary. Secondly, they were to fast. And in the third place, they were to afflict their souls. In other words, uh, you know, sometimes we emphasize so much what the high priest did inside that we forget what the people did outside in parallel fashion to what the high priest was doing inside. What I'm saying is that sometimes as Adventists we emphasize so much uh, what Jesus is doing in the most holy place that we forget that what he's doing in the most holy place needs to be reflected in what his people are doing on earth. In other words, Jesus is cleansing the heavenly temple and he wants us in parallel fashion to be cleansing the earthly temple of our body. And I want you to notice uh, in this context Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11. Uh, Joel 2 is a very interesting chapter. Uh, it really is describing the second coming of Christ. You read the first 10 verses of Joel 2 Clearly, it's describing the second coming of Christ. And when it gets to the end of the description, I want to just read verses 10 and 11. Uh, it's speaking about this invading army, which is Christ and his angels, and they're riding horses, just like it says in Revelation 19. So it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. That's speaking about the second coming. Same thing as Revelation 6. And then it says in verse 11, the Lord gives voice before his army. So the Lord is coming with his army. For his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. And then a question is asked. For the, great, for, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So you have this scene of uh, signs in the sun and the moon and a great earthquake and, and, and God leading his army and it, the, the scene ends by asking the question for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible who can endure it? Well the, the next verses describe us describe who will be able to endure it and the next verses use day of atonement terminology Notice Joel 2, verses 12 and 13, and then we'll read verses 15 to 17. Now therefore, says the Lord, what does that word therefore indicate? Now therefore, says the Lord. Because I've asked this question, what do you need to do in the light of that? He says, turn to me with what? 
with all your heart. With what? Is that Day of Atonement? Yes. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And then verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. See, there you have the announcement of the Day of Atonement. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, Day of Atonement practice. Call a sacred assembly. Do you know Israel was required to gather around the sanctuary? So it says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out of his chamber, and the bride from her dressing room, let the priests who minister to the Lord, those are the pastors by the way, weep between the porch and the altar, let them say, spare you people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So what is the answer to the question, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? Let me ask you, who is it that can endure it? Those who turn to the Lord with all their heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, who rend their hearts, which means afflict your soul, who gather, who are sanctified. In other words, while the heavenly temple is being cleansed, the earthly temple of the soul must be cleansed in parallel fashion because Jesus will not cleanse from there anything that is not cleansed here. Are you with me? Now, do you know that Revelation 16, 6 verse 17 ends with the same question? that we just read in Joel. In the verses before verse 17, do you have signs in the sun, moon, stars, great earthquake, people hiding in the caves and crying for the rocks to fall on them? Same context as Joel. And it ends with a question. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? Is that the same question? Yes, it is. Where would you expect to find the answer to that question, who shall be able to stand in the great day of his wrath? How about the next chapter? Do you know what the next chapter describes? The 144,000. Who shall be able to stand? What kind of character do they have? You go to Revelation 14. See, Revelation 7 describes the sealing of the 144,000. Revelation 14 describes their character, which qualified them to be sealed. The Bible says that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are without fault before the throne of God. They were not defiled with women. That doesn't mean that they weren't married. Because marriage does not, is not defiling. It means that they, they were not defiled with the, with the women of, uh, you know, with Babylon and her daughters, the harlot and her daughters. So you have the sterling qualities, you know, there was no guile in their mouth. Amen. In other words, they had a sterling character. There's, that's the reason why they were able to stand. 
because their lives were cleansed in the Day of Atonement. Now let me read you these statements from Ellen White. Do you hear much of this uh, in, in the non-Adventist world? The necess necessity of victory over sin? And having our minds in the sanctuary with Christ? Afflicting our soul? You know, you hear a lot, of, uh, a lot of Adventists today talking about dancing in church and jumping and, and uh, having good music that inspires and, and all these things. You know, the, the, the time for that is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Day of Atonement is a time of afflicting the soul, of searching the heart, and begging for the Holy Spirit to cleanse the life. So that Jesus can cleanse from there what is, cleansed, what is being cleansed by the Holy Spirit here. See, while Jesus cleanses there, the Holy Spirit cleanses here. Somebody asked me, you know, can God revoke his forgiveness? You know, you ask that question of a non-Adventist, they'll say, oh no, once God forgives, you know, God can't revoke his forgiveness. Oh yes, he can. You know what happens in, in the daily service when we confess our sins? Jesus takes us at our word and he, writes, he writes forgiven next to those sins. Now, was the repentance genuine or not? That's not examined at that point. The sincerity of your profession is examined when your case comes up in the judgment. And then it will be decided whether the forgiveness granted should be revoked or not. You say, well, that, that doesn't sound right. Do you remember Jesus once told a parable of two debtors? There was this guy that owed a huge sum of money. 10,000 talents. A debt that was not possible to pay. Impossible. Too large a sum. And so, you know, the... the by the way, uh, most scholars believe that he had uh, embezzled that money. And so the, his master said, throw him into prison until he pays for everything. And he cries out, he says, oh, please, give me time, I'll pay you. The master says, come on, you can't pay, you know you can't pay. It's impossible. But I'll do something better. He says, I'll forgive your debt. Forgiven. Because you cried out to me, because you begged for mercy, out of my kindness, your debt is forgiven. Wow, this guy is, is amazed. Let me ask you, was he forgiven? Of course he was forgiven. Was his repentance sincere? No. How do we know it wasn't sincere? By his works. We understood that he did not understand forgiveness. Because he goes out and he finds someone who owes him, ten, owes him 100 denarii. The equivalent of 100, 100 days of work. A payable debt? Yes, in installments. It could be paid. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And this individual says, give me time, I'll pay you. No, I'm not going to give you any time. And the Bible says he shakes him by the next, pay me. Was he really sorry? No. Do you know why he cried out for forgiveness? It's because he was afraid of going to jail. 
not because he realized that what he'd done was wrong. And that was shown by the way that he treated his fellow human being. Was his forgiveness revoked? Yes, it was. And by the way, it says he's called to render an account. That's the judgment. There's a judgment in that particular story. Now, let's read these statements from Ellen White about the need. What God's people need today, folks, is holiness. Holiness. Holiness has greatly departed from Adventist churches. You can tell by the way that people dress by the kind of music that they use in church, by the kinds of entertainment that they're involved in. It's amazing. Notice the book Maranatha, page 249. Ellen White says, From the Holy of Holies, there goes on the grand work of instruction. The angels of God are communicating to men. What are they communicating? What do you think the angels are communicating to men? Well, let's continue reading. Christ officiates in the sanctuary. We do not what? Follow him into the sanctuary as we should. Can we follow Jesus into the sanctuary? How can we do that if, he is, if the sanctuary is in heaven and we live here? By faith. Our mind should be there. So she says, we do not follow him into the sanctuary as we should. Christ and angels works in, work in the hearts of the children of men. The church above, united with the church below, is warring the good warfare upon the earth. Now listen carefully. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. In the devotional book, The Upward Look, Ellen White says, Satan is constantly alluring away from faithfulness and thoroughness in the essential work of preparedness for the great event that will try every man's soul. The work in the heavenly sanctuary is going forward. Jesus is cleansing the sanctuary. Now listen carefully. The work on earth corresponds with the work in heaven. The heavenly angels are at work constantly to draw man, the living agent, to look to Jesus, to contemplate and meditate upon Jesus, that he may, in viewing the perfection of Christ, be impressed with the imperfections of his own character. This is the burden of the message for this time. Amazing. Is that the most holy place message? Yes, it is. The Day of Atonement message. That's the upward look, page 344. And then manuscript 15, 1886. She has this remarkable statement. Godliness, sobriety, and consistency will characterize the life and example of every true Christian. The work which Christ is doing in the sanctuary above will engage the thoughts and be the burden of the conversation. Because by faith, he, that means the people, he has entered into the sanctuary. 
He is on earth. She's using he to refer to the people. He is on earth. But what? But his sympathies are in harmony with the work that Christ is doing in heaven. Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary from the sins of the people. And it is the work of all who are laborers together with God to be cleansing the sanctuary of the soul from everything that is offensive to him. Folks, we should not only focus on what Jesus is doing in heaven. Oh yeah, Jesus is up there, you know, he's cleansing the books from sin. Well, he's not going to cleanse from the book what is not, from the books what is not cleansed from the heart. Because that'd be cheating. Are you following me? This is unique to Adventism. God wants not only have to have a forgiven people, God wants to have a sanctified and holy people. So where are the distinctive truths of the Adventist church to be found? They are found in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. The Sabbath, the law, state of the dead, health reform, victory over sin, sanctification, you name it. It's all centered in the most holy place. So let me ask you, what is present truth? Folks, present truth is every truth that is related to the most holy place. That is the message that we should be proclaim, proclaiming to the world. It's God's last day message. And if we're not doing that, we don't have any reason to exist. Because if we're preaching what everyone else is preaching, well, what reason do we have to exist? And the devil has done his utmost to muffle our message and to muzzle the messengers. Unfortunately. Now, let me read you this statement on present truth from Early Writings, page 63. She says uh, about what present truth is. She says, there are many precious truths contained in the Word of God. But it is the present truth that the flock needs now. It, was the present truth in Ellen White's day the same present truth as today? Is Jesus in the same place? Is he doing the same work? So is it the same present truth? Of course it is. But now listen. What's very solemn is that what began in 1844 was the judgment of the dead. And that was announced by the Millerite movement. It's called the Midnight Cry. But soon the judgment of the living is going to begin. And that will be announced by the loud cry. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the truths that were taught in 1844 will be, will be brought before the world all over again. But in a global perspective. Yes. We know that the judgment has passed from the dead to the living when the latter rain and the loud cry take place. Ellen White links those two. Now we can't give you a date, specific date, but we know an event. Listen, every time that Jesus is going to begin a new work, there's, there's a powerful announcement. Was his, was his birth powerfully announced when he was born? 
Yes. The angels sang in heaven, right? Now, when Jesus was going to begin his ministry, was there a powerful announcement that prepared the way? Who was it? John the Baptist. When Jesus was going to go to the cross, was every, every eye attracted to him? Where? When? At the triumphal entry. When Jesus began his work in the heavenly sanctuary as our intercessor, was there a powerful earthly event that said that he was beginning it? A mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire. Yes, speaking in tongues. There was an earthly announcement that Jesus had begun a work. Leading up to 1844, was there a powerful earthly announcement that a great event was to begin in the heavenly sanctuary? What makes you think that there's not going to be a powerful announcement about the beginning of the judgment of the living, which is Christ's final work? That announcement is in Revelation 18, where the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then the message of the most holy place will be proclaimed in all its power. And that's what we should be praying for, for that day to come. She continues saying, there are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is the present truth that the flock needs now. And then notice she expresses a danger. I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will hear, and, I, and what's in red are my own uh, explanation Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause now what is present to she says but such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days that's the judgment right the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus those are three angels messages right are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messenger should dwell. Amen. You think that's still true? Amen. That's still true, folks. Still true. It's the same present truth today as it was in the days of Elohim. It's even more urgent now. Let me ask you, what are the doctrines that the Adventist church holds that the Christian world despises most? How about the law? I was nailed to the cross. It was for the Jews. It's the old covenant. We're saved by grace. Is the law going to be a big issue in the end time conflict? Hmm. How about the Sabbath? They love the Sabbath? No. Despise the Sabbath. That was for the Jews. It's legalism. There was old covenant. It's bondage, is what they say. What do they believe about the state of the dead? The dead know everything. What do they say about, about health reform? They say, oh, your prayer sanctifies the pork chop. <laughs> what do they say about an investigative judgment? 
They say, oh, that was an invention of Ellen White. The very distinctive doctrines that are revealed in the most holy place are the doctrines that are hated by the religious world. And that's why God has called us to proclaim that message to rebuke the religious world and to call out those who are sincere. That is the unique message that God has given the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And Ellen White in early writings, page 256, and then we'll talk about the synagogue of Satan because that's really important for what we're going to discuss this afternoon. Uh, early writings 256, how important are the three angels' messages? How important is our present truth message? Listen to this, folks. These messages, which are most holy place messages we've shown, these messages were represented to me as what? An anchor to the people of God. Those who understand and receive them will be kept from being swept away by the many delusions of Satan. Do those delusions have anything to do with the law? Do those delusions have anything to do with spiritualism? Do those delusions have anything to do with, with a counterfeit Sabbath? See, if you're rooted in the most holy place, that will be an anchor that will keep you safe according to the spirit of prophecy. If you're rooted any other place, you'll be blown away by every wind of doctrine, which is happening in many circles, unfortunately, of the Adventist church today. So, have you understood what we've studied? The crucial importance? By the way, this is all developed in the book that I wrote, Worship at Satan's Throne. There's much more in the book than what I've been able to give you. So I would recommend that you get a copy of that book and the other books that I mentioned as well. Now, I want to um, take a few minutes now, we only have uh, like maybe about 20 minutes more, uh, to discuss the synagogue of Satan. There are genuine believers in Philadelphia. Would you, would you agree with that? Amen. They're the ones who enter what? The open door. Where does the, where does the open door lead? To the most holy place. Not only do we have that in the churches, we have it in Revelation 11, we have it in Daniel 7, we have it in Revelation 13 and 14. There's always leading into the most holy place. But in the church of Philadelphia, you not only have those who have the open door before them and actually enter, we're going to see the open door, but you have another group which attack them. They're called the synagogue of Satan. Now the question is, who is the synagogue of Satan? Well, let's read Revelation 3 verse 9. Revelation 3 verse 9, and I don't know if I should take the time to try and find this here. I know I do have it. Let me see, where would it be? So that you can follow along. Uh, that's Ellen White's concept. By the way, don't miss this afternoon. If you miss this morning, that's okay. <laughs> but you don't want to miss this afternoon. Uh, because this afternoon we're going to see how Ellen White described what we studied this morning. This morning we dealt with scripture. But Ellen White had a famous throne vision in early writings scary vision 
where she describes what happened in Daniel 7. And, uh, and it, it has a lot to tell us uh, these days. Okay, here we are. All right. We're almost there. Synagogue of Satan. I'm not going to deal with Ellen White's view of the synagogue. I'm going to only deal with scripture. That's the way I, I do. Go scripture and then Ellen White. And if we start with Ellen White, we always end with scripture. Amen. We never take her by herself. We, we work both ways. You know, but we never allow Ellen White to, to define any doctrine or any view. It's scriptural. So now let's examine the expression synagogue of Satan in Revelation 3 verse 9. This designation seems to indicate that the Philadelphian period of church history would be characterized not only by genuine believers, but also by counterfeit ones. And this is what the verse says. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. So who are the members of the synagogue of Satan? Those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Hmm. Indeed, now this is interesting, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So this is, this is actually a prophecy about what the enemies of the faithful in Philadelphia are eventually going to do. And Ellen White always applies this to the very end, end of the great time of trouble. And we'll discuss that later on in our series. Uh, she says that, that those who particularly uh, persecuted Miller and others, you know, when, when you have the special resurrection, they will, they will admit that the message that was proclaimed in 1844 as well as the end time message was of God. But then of course it's going to be too late. Now what is meant by this enigmatic expression? Synagogue of Satan. Now in the first place it's important for us to realize that uh, Old Testament Jewish terminology is employed in the descriptions given in several of the seven churches. You're aware of that. The seven churches describe periods of church history. And yet in describing church history, you'll find that Jewish terminology is used in some of the churches. For example, in the church of Pergamum, it says, it speaks about the doctrine of Balaam. Well, you know, Balaam was an Old Testament figure. But the New Testament period of the church, spoken of as Pergamum, has the characteristics somehow of Balaam. And really what happened is, you know, the devil tried to destroy the church from outside by killing, you know, through the Roman emperors. That's the church of, of Smyrna. He wasn't able to do it. The more he killed, the more the church grew. So the devil says, well, you know, if you can't, if you can't destroy him from outside, but infiltrate them. And so he introduces apostasy and idolatry into the church. That's exactly what happened in the days of Balaam. Balaam tried to curse Israel from outside, couldn't, because they were in a good relationship with the Lord. So what did he do? He introduced apostasy into Israel. The church of Thyatira allows that woman Jezebel. Now Jezebel had been dead for many hundred years. 
But it, it's, it's a church that has the characteristics of Jezebel. But you're not dealing with literal Jezebel, with literal Jews. You're not dealing with literal Balaam, literal Jewish nation. But you're dealing with characteristics that apply to the Christian church. Which means that the expression synagogue of Satan does not deal with the literal Jews. It deals with what? It must be a spiritual designation for people who claim to be spiritual Jews. Now, even the dispensationalist Hal Lindsey would have to admit, because he says that the seven churches represent seven ch periods of church history. But then he has, the, he has problems with the Jewish terminology that apply to the churches. He would have to admit that, that uh, you know, the, the churches really represent seven periods of church history. It has nothing to do with the literal Jewish nation. Now, so the important question in determining the meaning of the expression, the synagogue of Satan, is this. Who is true Israel after the day of Pentecost? That's the big question. Who is a Jew? Who is a true Jew, a genuine Jew, after the day of Pentecost? You're dealing symbolically with Israel. Are you following me or not? Who is true Israel after Pentecost? The Bible makes it very clear. Notice Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So there are Jews that are not Jews. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. So what is a Jew, spiritually speaking? One who has been circumcised in his or her heart. In other words, they've been converted to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Notice Romans 9 verses 6 through 8. We're going to examine several texts. Romans 9 verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, and not all they are, and not nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, that is literal Jews, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise as, are counted as a seed. So you're dealing with spiritual Israel. What is Israel according to the New Testament definition? It is those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Notice Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. So... My question is, what is a Jew according to the New Testament? A Jew according to the New Testament, a genuine Jew, is one who has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, has been converted, has had a circumcised heart. You know, Nathaniel recognized that in John 1, 47 to 49. You remember he was under a, uh, under a fig tree? It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and say, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, 
Now, if there's an Israelite indeed, there must be Israelites not indeed. <laughs> and the word indeed there is, a, is, is the Greek word alethos, which means true. In other words, a true Israelite is what Jesus is saying. In whom is no deceit. Interesting. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Because before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And now what made Nathanael an Israelite indeed? Notice, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He recognized whom? Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You remember the conversation that uh, Jesus had with some Jews. It begins in John 8, verse 39. They claimed to be children of Abraham. They claimed to be, uh, you know, Jews. And they, they were proud of their heritage. Notice verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And then he says, you are of your father what? You are of your father the devil. No, you're not children of Abraham. Because they rejected whom? Christ. So he says, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now let me ask you then, what would, uh, what would one who claims to be a Jew but is not a Jew mean when it comes to the Christian church? Are there Christians that claim to be followers of Jesus that are not really genuine followers of Jesus? Yes, absolutely. In other words, as you have Jews, have you had true Jews and counterfeit Jews, you have true Christians and counterfeit Christians. What distinguishes a, a true Christian from a counterfeit one? Notice Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Were these Christians? Did they claim to be Christians? Yes. Did we not, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. So they claim to be Christians. 
if you please, Jews. But are they really? No. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know that word lawlessness is very interesting. It's the same word that is translated in 1 John 3, 4, transgression of the law. In other words, depart from me, you transgressors of the law. Now, it is particularly important to keep in mind for future reference, and we're going to come back to this later on, that the principal characteristic of these professed believers who perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus in Matthew 7, and who claim to believe in him, is that they say, Lord, Lord. But instead of doing the will of the Father, they practice lawlessness or they transgress the law. Did Jesus speak about these counterfeit believers in the, in the story of the uh, ten virgins? He did. All had lamps. But some had a superficial relationship with Christ. Now, Ellen White, this is an important point, Ellen White drew a parallel between the counterfeit Jews of Christ's day and the counterfeit Christians at the end of time. Now listen to the way Ellen White expressed it. I struggled with this for quite a while, not because I don't believe what Ellen White says, but in order to explain what she meant. She says, the great sin of the Jews was their rejection of Christ. That's what made them not real Jews, right? Would you agree? The great sin of the Christian world would be their rejection of the law of God, the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. So what was the great sin of the Jews? The rejection of what? Christ. What is going to be the great sin of the Christian world? The rejection of the law. Now at first sight, these two sins appear to, bear no, appear to have no relationship. But a closer inspection reveals that they are really the same sin. And you ask probably, how is this so? Listen carefully. Ellen White says, Christ was the embodiment of the law of God, which is the transcript of his character. In other words, Jesus is the law of God in bodily form. He said, I delight to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. In other words, Jesus is the law in person and the Ten Commandments are the law in written form. They're Jesus in written form, a written description of his character. In person and in written form. Now here's my big question. How can you say, I love Jesus, but I hate the transcript? Are you with me or not? And yet Christians say, oh, my beloved Jesus, but I hate the law. How can you hate the law if it's a reflection of the character of Jesus? It's a contradiction in terms. To hate the law is to hate Jesus because the law is a reflection of Jesus. 
It's the same sin look at, looked at from a different perspective. So what is the great sin of the Christian world? By rejecting the law, they are rejecting Christ. Is it just possible that the synagogue of Satan has anything to do with the rejection of God's law? Hmm. You have this interesting statement from Ellen White. In the judgment God will ask those who profess to be Christians, why did you claim to believe in my son and continue to transgress my law? Who required this at your hands to trample upon my rules of righteousness? Now listen carefully. I'm going to go a little bit to Adventist history now and then, uh, you know, we'll bring this to an end. We have about two minutes left. Shortly after the papacy was given its mortal wound in 1798, which is the time frame of the Philadelphian church, an interdenominational and intercontinental movement arose that announced that Jesus was going to come in judgment upon the world in the spring of 1844. Remember that movement? And later they announced that Jesus was going to come in the fall of that year. Most Christians who claimed to be followers of Jesus scorned and ridiculed those who proclaimed the message. In fact, most of those who believed in it believed in and proclaimed the message of the judgment were expelled from their churches including the entire Harmon family. So who was the synagogue of Satan in 1844 when the door was opened? Those who opposed the message of the Millerite movement. The nominal Christians in these churches who claimed to be followers of Jesus mistreated the faithful of God who were proclaiming the hour of God's judgment. This led to the preaching of the second angel's message calling God's faithful children to come out of Babylon, which is equivalent to the synagogue of Satan. Are you with me or not? The counterfeit believers who rejected the judgment hour message were the synagogue of Satan at that time. They claimed to love Jesus, but they scorned the message of his coming. And as we shall see later in this study, this afternoon, when Jesus moved into the most holy place through the door that he opened with the key. I didn't go into that. That's Isaiah 22. That's, you have to go to the book for that. That'd take me a couple of hours just to go, you know, the, the key of David and so on. These counterfeit Christians refused to enter with Jesus. And as a result, they rejected the law on the Sabbath and scorned those who did enter. Are you following me? Yeah. And you know what's interesting? I'll end with this. What's interesting is that as soon as our pioneers, that small group at the beginning, entered the most holy place, they started discovering one by one the distinctive doctrines of the Adventist church. Soon they said, the law is binding. The Sabbath is still God's day of rest. We must take care of our body. The dead know not anything. Within a period of 20 years, they, they adopted all of the other cluster of truths because when they went into the most holy place, they saw it all. There's something special about the most holy place. That is our message. 
That is present truth. And woe to us if we proclaim any other truth. You know, there are other truths in the Bible that are, that are, that are beautiful. Doctrine of the Godhead is a beautiful, beautiful doctrine. You know, and, and there's many, many decrees. Jesus died on the cross. Vital, vitally important. Foundational to everything else. But we can't stay there. We have to go from there to the next, to the next, to follow Jesus through the sanctuary. You know, we can know our duty by just following Jesus through the sanctuary. So, have you understood what we studied? Does that make sense? Now, don't miss this afternoon. For nothing in the world. We're going to study the throne vision. It's a fascinating vision that Ellen White... By the way, all of the early visions of Ellen White follow this same pattern that we discussed from the Bible. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the message that you have committed to your remnant church. We realize that it's an awesome privilege to belong to your remnant church, but we also realize that it's an awesome responsibility. Help us, Lord, to fulfill our responsibility and not only enjoy the benefits that you have given us. Lord, we know that the world needs this message desperately. And we are the ones that you are going to use to proclaim it to the world. Help us, Lord, to be instrumented in your hands. We love you. We love your message. We love humanity. And we want to see everyone saved in your kingdom. So we ask that you will use us. And this we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.